Hello everyone, welcome to Langstaff Assembly Podcast. My name is Yanaili Joyce and I'm your host for this episode. Thank you for joining us today. We hope that this message encourages you and that it draws you near to God. I would like to uh, speak this morning on a question that Brian asked me in the Bible study a few weeks ago. And I mentioned that, that I might go this route. And in the end, this is where I ended up. The question that that he gave me was similar to the question you see here on the screen. What does it mean that the wise man built his house upon the rock? Now, you might think this is very, very elementary. I was going to say it is, but actually it's not. See, most of us grew up in Sunday school. We learned this song really well. The wise man built his house upon the rock. The foolish man built his house upon the sand. If you build, if you trust in the Lord Jesus, then you're on the rock. And if you trust in yourself or something else, you're on the sand. That sounds good, but it's not... Not, not what the parable's about, and a half-truth is not a truth at all, and the problem with a half-truth is it creates these ideas in our mind that actually are not true. That's a problem. This parable was told by the Lord Jesus at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and the reason why he did that is that he was tying his entire message together. So I want you to remember that. Now, I sang the song this morning. I won't sing it for you, the one we sing with the children, and actually, whoever wrote the original song knew what they were talking about. Because the end of the song actually tells you what the point of the parable is. It's just, I think we have invented it to be something that it's not. Of course, Christ is the rock. And of course, if we trust in something else, then it's it's going to uh, uh, turn into a disaster. But that's not what the Lord Jesus is talking about. We use this parable to sometimes describe salvation. When this parable has nothing to do with salvation, it has everything to do with discipleship. And that's the subject that I would like to study with you this morning. So turn with me to Luke's gospel. It's the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. My intent is to, I I told myself I was just going to have a very, very short message and leave you with very few things to think about. But then as I study something, I, I get carried away. So I'm going to try and give you something. And then I'm going to illustrate some of my points through the Sermon on the Mount itself. So it should be more of an illustration versus ramming down uh, in your mind this morning things that I've been meditating on for sometimes hours or days or sometimes months when I get up here on the platform. So I'm going to try to restrict myself and deal with just one simple subject that I can hopefully drive home with the help of God. So Luke chapter 7 and verse 24 The Lord Jesus said, now this is after chapter 5, chapter 6, and all of chapter 7. He comes to the very end of his uh, message on the sermon, and he says here in his conclusion, he says, anyone, verse 24, anyone who listens to my teaching, catch these words, and follows it is wise. Like a person who builds his house on a solid rock. Though the rain comes in torrents and the flood waters rise and the winds beat against the house, it won't collapse because it is built on bedrock. But anyone who hears my teaching, same as the first person, but it says, here's my teaching and doesn't obey it is foolish. Like a person who builds his house on sand. When the rains and floods come and the winds beat against that house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. Now, my message this morning is all about true discipleship. True discipleship. I'll talk a little bit about the Reformation. I think the Reformation and the push to go back to a more simple understanding of salvation also lent itself ultimately to an incorrect understanding of discipleship. 
because salvation became an easy believism. And after that, I had my passport for heaven. I could live the way I wanted. That's not what the Lord Jesus taught. In fact, he taught very, very differently than that. Sometimes the uh, apostles um, will quote from a famous person of their day. I found this uh, modern quote and I thought it was quite interesting. A foolish man thinks he knows everything. A wise man knows he doesn't. I actually think that's a very, very good saying. You see, uh, religious people, and this is actually the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is actually comparing his kingdom to the kingdom designed by religious people. That's actually the, it's got nothing to do with uh, publicans in this message. The focus actually has to do with the religious, and that's why he says, unless your righteousness exceeds those of the Pharisees, you can never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is what he's defining. So he's, he's saying that this phrase here is a good phrase for us to use. A foolish person, a religious person at times, thinks they know everything. You ever know anyone who thinks they know everything? It's disastrous. It's disastrous. Some of you are looking at each other here. It's disastrous, right? We know that. A wise man knows he doesn't because a wise man builds his house on the teachings of Christ. That's the whole point. It's the whole point of the parable that's being defined here. Now, I want to talk for just a moment. This is my main delivery this morning. So if you lose sight of everything after, that's okay, because I'm just going to use it to illustrate this principle. I want to talk about a three-legged stool. Um, My father, when he was in elementary school, he built a three-legged stool. And not only did he build it, but he still has it today. I mean, I don't think he has any project from school other than that project, if I'm not mistaken. I'm, I'm certain of it. And it's at the cottage, and it still It still works. We don't use it very often. I think it sits in the living room close to the fireplace somewhere. Usually we use it to maybe put something on top of it. But once in a while, if there were a lot, a lot of people there, somebody might use the stool. Now, just a little lesson, because we don't use three-legged stools, I don't think, as often today. When you use a three-legged stool, you cannot sit on it like a regular four-legged uh, uh, um, chair. You can lean, you can go to the front, you can lean on the back. You can move your weight the way you want. But on a three-legged stool, you have to sit perfectly balanced. And if you do, the stool works really, really well. But if you go towards one side too much, you all know what's going to happen, right? You are going to fall. Sounds like the man who built his house on the sand, doesn't it? Everything goes away, right? Now, I want to tie this to biblical discipleship. Because the Lord Jesus rescued us so that he could disciple us. He didn't rescue us just to get us out of this place and take us far, far away in a land somewhere else. He saved us and rescued us so that he could make disciples of us. And one day, he's going to make a new heaven and new earth, and he's going to take us, the redeemed, and he's going to place us in it. So he he called us to not just rescue us, he called us to disciple us. Remember, unless you carry your cross daily and follow me, you cannot be my disciple, right? I can give you verse after verse after verse to reinforce what Jesus actually taught. He did not teach easy believism. Now, I'm going to give you three Greek words today. Orthodoxy, orthopraxy, and orthopathy. They are the three legs of discipleship. Now, don't get scared about these words. We're used to words like this. Orthodontist. What is an orthodontist? Two of my children on a monthly basis go to an orthodontist. Ortho means right or straight. And uh, dentist means teeth. Makes sense, right? You go to an orthodontist to get your teeth straightened to make them 
right. What about orthopedics? What's the purpose of orthopedics? Again, straight, right, pedic, foot, to make your foot straight or right. So what's orthodoxy? Orthodoxy is making our beliefs right. What's orthopraxy? Making our conduct right. What's orthopathy? Making our motives right. In order to be the Lord's disciple, you cannot focus too much on one over the other because you will topple over like the foolish man who built his house in the sand. The Lord Jesus Christ was perfectly balanced in every way. And he wants to make us like him. That's what it means to be his disciple. A disciple meant, I'm your apprentice. I want to learn your trade. I want to be like you. And this is what it means to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to talk about these three. Orthodoxy is getting right thinking. Orthopraxy is getting right acting. Good conduct. And orthopathy is right feeling or right motive. Now, let me give you just a, you know, you all know I love history. Let me give you a quick history lesson. Christendom at large for 2,000 years. This is what happens when Christians don't sit in the middle, which is called, where you, see the, where you see the star on the screen, that's spiritual maturity. That's actually discipleship in a balanced way. You take, for example, the Roman Catholics. They became very, very focused on orthopraxy, right action, good conduct. They've done a lot of good conduct. And there's a lot of believers as well that have lived in Roman Catholicism over the years. But right action, starting schools, hospitals, caring for the needy. They've done a lot of good things. But as the years went on, I think most of us would recognize that some of their orthodoxy got a little bit weird. Some of the things they began to introduce and include didn't go so well. Now, before you think I'm going to attack all the Roman Catholics out there, I'm going to attack all the Protestants as well. Because in the Reformation, the Reformation was all about orthodoxy right? Martin Luther, the just shall live by faith. Oh, and we love it because we're all from the Protestant. Well, actually, I come from both, right? I was born a Catholic and now I'm a Protestant, so I'm somewhere in between. So maybe I'm the only one who has no conflict of interest here. Let me tell you just one, one deliverable here. For all of the Protestants' movement on orthodoxy and getting everything so right, the Protestants have done a very terrible job in disunity. Because I don't know any segment of the Christian church today that is more fragmented and more divided than those who follow the line of Protestantism. And all of us, most of us, follow within that line. So you can see the problem here when you focus too much on one or too much on the other, right? We were called as disciples to live in a perfectly balanced way. You can think all your orthodoxy is perfect, but if your conduct is not right, boop, you're on the sand. You're not building your house on a solid foundation. This is really what the teachings of the Lord Jesus are. I hope it doesn't blow your mind completely, because that's my deliverable today. It's just to leave you with the importance of these three principles to balance living. Now, I'm going to go back. So if you forget everything I say, that's fine. Up to this well, no, up to this point, I want you to remember. After this, you can forget some of these things. I'm going to try and illustrate what I have just taught from, from, from what I believe the Scriptures hold true and what the Sermon on the Mount uh, is true on, uh, but, but by just covering a few of the points with the Sermon on the Mount. Let's begin with uh, this hashtag. I, I am a terrible social media person. I know nothing of it 
I, I, I live through social media through my wife. Whatever she tells me, that's what I learn because I have no Instagram account. I really have no Facebook account. I, I set one up to take a course recently, but it just says MJ DeSilva and nobody knows who I am because I know nothing about Facebook. So I am not a social media person, but I understand hashtags uh, are used to attach to these things. And I'm sure you've seen a hashtag like this before, hashtag blessed. What does it mean to be blessed? It's interesting because... If you read about it or you look online, people will attach this hashtag to a nice house, a good job, a vacation, or a healthy family. Unfortunately, none of those things are in the text. So you're not blessed for any of those things. In fact, the Lord is very clear that all those things are gifts from God. And he gives those gifts to the righteous and the unrighteous. Just like the sun falls on the righteous and the wicked and the rain. So it is with God's mighty gifts. You know, you might have, you know someone out there who's a really bad person, but they have a nice house. They have, they go on nice vacations. God's given them gifts. Doesn't make them blessed. In the text here, the Beatitudes, we learn what Jesus defines as being truly blessed. Here's the crazy thing. It's a quote here from N.T. Wright. When God wants to sort out the world, as the Beatitudes in the Sermon on Mount make clear, he doesn't send in the tanks. He sends in the meek, the broken, the justice-hungry, the peacemakers, the pure-hearted, and so on. Very interesting, right? He sends the very last people you would expect. I mean, you send in your warplanes, you send in your tanks, you invade the other army. No, the Lord sends these meek people, and broken people, and justice-hungry people, and peacemaking people. Yes, that's exactly what he does. So the first lesson we learn as we go through the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount is that we learn the important lesson that God's kingdom is backwards from the kingdom and mindset that we have in our world. This is why our orthodoxy and our orthopraxy and our orthopathy are so critically uh, needed in a balanced way so that we can understand the scriptures and therefore apply them. Salt and light is another great example. We mentioned this a few weeks ago in our Bible study. Salt is a great preservative, and light is a beacon by which we shine through darkness. I listened to a, a podcast a few days ago. It was a lady, a Jewish professor. She, she's not a, a believer. Her name is Amy Jill Levine. She teaches at Vanderbilt University, and she made a very interesting uh, observation in her, uh, in her delivery. It was, a, it was like an interview. And in her uh, delivery, she said, if Christians want to evangelize Jewish people, she says, um, maybe they should start living before them. Because she says, the problem I find with people who call themselves Christians is that they think they know everything. And they know everything that we Jewish people don't know. She says, if you really want to convert us, live before us, that actually might work. And I thought that was interesting. She's not a believer. And she made that comment. So again, we must remember that we need to be balanced in our Christian service and walk and our beliefs and our conduct and our motives, again, work like the three-stooled or the three-legged stool. Now, I, I read this quote from uh, Tim Keller in the, uh, the Inside Out Kingdom, and I thought it was very, very well-timed with this subject of salt and light. He wrote, Christian, uh, Christian when they see something falling apart, they get in there. You see someone emotionally falling apart, you go in like salt. When you see a neighborhood falling apart socially or economically, you go in. Christians are attracted to deeds of love and mercy because they are salt. Religious people, on the other hand, are hidden under a bowl. They really want to stick together. They don't like people out there who are different. 
They're not at all attracted to neighborhoods that are falling apart. They are not at all attracted to people who are falling apart. They look around and they pull their skirts in. That's the difference between people who are religious and Christianity. That's true. You know, the parable of the Good Samaritan is all about that, right? The religious people had no time for what was awful and bad in the moment. They didn't want to get themselves dirty. And that's what religion does. We, if we are salt and light, will bring both to the world. We will be both a preservative and with the word of God, we will shine a light. Because people want to know why you're different. When you explain to them why you are different, God often uses that through the Holy Spirit to save them. Now, practical living. I'm not going to get through all of these subjects. In fact, very few. I just want to make maybe a comment or two. Okay, scaring me now every time the light goes. Um, Anger. Adultery, lust, divorce, vows, revenge, and enemies are the topics of chapter 5. Now, I'm going to leave you all with homework. You say homework, why? Because you became a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. When you become a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have a lifetime of homework. It's just what it comes with it, right? It's not easy believism. And, and, and I would like to challenge, this is August 1st. I'm going to do it myself. I'd like to challenge all of you in the assembly here that I serve with and are, I consider my spiritual family together. I, I would like to challenge all of us that every day in August and every week in August, we actually try to allow the Spirit of God to transform us every single day, just a little bit more. And I want you to use Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Because if you follow Matthew 5, 6, and 7, you hear his teachings and you obey them, you will be a wise person who built his house on the rock. That's what we've been called to do. And I, and I want to encourage everyone. You have a problem at work? You get angry? What does the Bible tell us how to deal with anger? It's clearly here in the text. I know how we want to deal with anger. But how does the scriptures tell us to deal with anger? The subject of lust and divorce, I just want to make a simple point on this. The religious people, I say them in the past, but they're just a byproduct of all religious people that have lived and live today. Religious people love to work with rules, but they actually don't do a great job even of their own rules because they break their own rules when things don't go the way they want. You see, the Pharisees were really good at saying, as long as I don't commit adultery, as long as I don't steal, I haven't broken the law. And the Lord Jesus said, which actually makes religious people really uncomfortable, and they don't like reading the Lord Jesus' words very often, actually. They they like Paul, but they don't like the Lord. And there's a reason for it. Because the Lord drives the point home. That's why. The Lord says, if you even think about it in your heart, you've committed it already. Woo! A standard that legalists cannot follow. You can't follow the standard. Because our minds are polluted. They're filled with sin. And we think the wrong thing thoughts. You say, was that fair of the Lord Jesus to say? Because the law didn't say that. Let me tell you, the Lord was talking about his kingdom. In a future day, we are going to be part of a new heaven and new earth and the eternal kingdom of God. Do you want to live in a kingdom in the future that doesn't commit adultery, that doesn't steal, but everyone still thinks it in their heart? Do you really want to live in a new reality looks like that? I don't. Because the new reality I'm looking forward to is a reality that sin has been destroyed, abolished, gone in what I do and in what I think. You know, in Revelation, those who have the stamp, whether it's of God or of the beast, they have it in their foreheads and they have it in their hands. I think there's a reason for it. Go back to your old Jewish uh, text and you'll know. They put the word of God on their heads. You ever see those Jewish people, Orthodox, they tie the thing to their head? They had it on their head and they had it on their hands. Why? Because their head is their mind and their hands are their actions. In mind and in actions, we are to be different people. 
So I see that in the example here. The, the, the subject of divorce, many Christians have used this as a subject by which to then propel to all kinds of crazy things today. The only reason why the Lord Jesus, I think, threw in the subject of divorce here was to show these Pharisee teachers that they were using the law to say, well, Moses says I could get divorced. So when my wife is old and she doesn't pleasure me anymore, I can find a younger girl. I can divorce her and I can, I can, I can marry her. That's what they were doing. The reason why the Lord Jesus said what he said was, you don't understand the law. Why, why do you get married in the first place? All of us who got married, wasn't it sickness and in health? Not just in health until I don't feel like we should anymore, right? The Lord was going back to the heart of the matter. A vow is a vow. A commitment is a commitment. And so we have the subject of divorce. The last one I'm going to touch upon here is the subject of enemies. The reason why I want to touch upon it is I think that even us as Christians, we get really confused on what Jesus meant by love your enemies. And I hope to better define it. If you don't think it's a good definition, give me yours later. But this is the one I, 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 I'm, I'm with right now. This is how, how far I got in it. I will say that that Jewish professor in the podcast, she did say this one thing. She says, of all the things Jesus taught, there's one thing that he said that nobody before him has ever said before. Love your enemies. So I, I just throw that out there. This is a big one. This is a big deal. What did Jesus mean when he said, love your enemies? I believe very clearly what he meant was, treat everyone equally. The problem with Christians trying to follow the words of the Lord is that if they're not sitting in a balanced stool and they're getting a little bit off kilter a little bit, they begin to define these things by their own definition. I, I hear Christians talk about loving their enemies almost as though they're supposed to treat enemies better than they treat their family. That's not what he taught. Because tied to the text is how God is God takes care of the righteous and the unrighteous together. The rain and the sun were the examples. Okay, So, I believe what the Lord is teaching here, and it is a teaching that has never been heard before, is that we are to treat our enemies in the same decency that we treat those we love. Because he says, if you don't, you're like the Gentiles if you don't do that. So we are to treat them equally. We are not to treat them in some other odd or special way as though they have like preeminence or they, they're allowed to live in their sin. And I'm supposed to say, yes, I love my enemy. That's not what he taught. And I'm going to explain the reason why. I'm going to give you one verse. I, I always like to explain orthodoxy with orthopraxy, the, the conduct of the Lord Jesus tied to the, the teachings that he gave. And Uncle Harry actually mentioned the very section that I thought, because of all of Jesus' enemies, there was no enemy in human form like the counsel that put him to death. And what did Jesus say? He said, if I have done evil, bear witness of the evil, but of wrong, why are you hitting me? You see his graciousness. At the cross, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They're, 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 we see the compassion of our Lord Jesus. But standing before the council in Matthew 26 and 64, and Uncle Harry mentioned it, the Lord Jesus said to them, they asked him if he was the Son of God, and he says, you have said it. And these were his words. And in the future... You will see the Son of Man seated in the place of power at God's right hand and coming in the clouds of heaven. You know what the Lord Jesus was telling his enemies? The day's coming, and I'm going to judge every single one of you. Oh, love your enemy. He did. That's the point. He was trying to warn them of what was coming in a future day. You see, the future day that was coming, next time they would see Jesus, was judgment day. That's the picture here. 
That's Daniel's prophecy being recapitulated here. He is showing us what the future is going to hold. Listen, in the Beatitudes, we talked about peacemaker. Jesus was a peacemaker. Jesus was not a peacekeeper. Peacekeepers cause a lot of problems in our life. You know why? They try to keep the peace. I try to, I, I try to reconcile. I mean, I, I, I would have been a peacekeeper for years. Maybe people think I don't have peace at all, but I do. I want to be a peacemaker. A peacemaker sacrifices themselves on the altar to bring two parties together. So that's what a peacemaker will do. That's what the Lord Jesus did at the cross. He was a true peacemaker. But what was he going to do? Turn to his father and say, come on, can't we just figure out a way with these people? Like, do we have to go to the cross? That's a peacekeeper. It doesn't do. And in fact, you do not love your enemies. When my children do something that I know is going to result in a problem, or if I think it's going to be a catastrophe, I would not love them if I didn't tell them. I am to treat my enemy as I treat myself and as I treat my family. So if my enemy's child finds themselves in big trouble and I'm given a responsibility to deal with them and I deal with them respectfully and love as I would treat my children, I've loved my enemy. What I've noticed in Christian life is that oftentimes religious people are very hard on everyone else's children, but their children get away with everything. They don't love their enemy. That's what Jesus is actually teaching. And when I thought of being a peacekeeper, I could only think of two reasons why people are peacekeepers. By the way, when you're a peacekeeper, you're an accomplice to your enemy's sin. The first is because the enemy gives you something you still want. So you say you love your enemy, but you don't. You just want them to give you what you continually want. And the other reason, and I don't mean to be harsh about it at all, the other reason why people try to be peacekeepers instead of peacemakers with their enemy is because they're cowards. They're not willing to do the hard stuff. And sometimes it's really hard to stand in front of a bunch of people and say, one day you will see me standing at the right hand of God and you will be judged for your sin. He wanted them to be, he wanted them to come for forgiveness. He wanted them to be saved, right? That's how you love your enemy. So let's not make our enemy something special in our life different that we do obeisance to in, in reference to fulfilling these words. That's not the case. I lost coverage again, didn't I? All right, so the rest of the people online, you're going to miss the last slides, or are you all going to miss the last slides? Everyone's going to miss the last slide. That's okay. That's okay. I'm near the end, and I don't want to take away from the solemnness of the message. David Lloyd-Jones said, the glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. We can attract this world, not by its sin. We attract the world by the love of God. Believe it or not, people are attracted to God's love because we were made in God's image. And ultimately, despite sin being what it is, there are many people who they just don't know the answer to life's biggest problems. And as Christians, we know the answer. And so when we live before them, we have the great privilege to attract them. Don't attract them with your words and then mistreat them because you haven't attracted them at all. Chapter 6 deals with things, and I'm not going to get into the, into the subjects of it, giving and the needy, uh, uh, prayer and fasting, money and possessions, all really important things. In chapter 7, and I'm going to wrap this up now, we have judging, prayer, rule of life, pathway to living, discernment, and real versus fake. Two things I want to address in that section here. The rule of life, we call it sometimes the golden rule. Do to others whatever you would like them to do to you. This is the essence of all that is taught in the law and in the prophets. Now, sometimes because we are so repelled against works and people trying to get themselves to heaven that we don't get discipled in the process because we take all the good verses and we throw them away. 
That's an incredible verse. Your whole week, you want to fulfill what the Lord has called you to fulfill? Love everyone else around you as you love yourself. Treat them the way you would want to be treated. And in this, all of the law and the prophets are fulfilled. You know what that tells me? Every person that the Lord Jesus came in contact with, he treated them as himself. That's pretty big. You know why? Because the Samaritan woman, the woman caught in sin, and all those different people were filled with sin, and Jesus had none. And he treated them as if, I guess they hadn't sinned, right? At least in his treatment of them. He treated them in that way. What a respectful way. What a loving Savior we have. You know, his words are actually not uh, uh, difficult to understand. They are impossible without the Spirit's leading. I don't want you to leave today saying, oh man, if you put this big yoke on us, because the Lord said he gave us one that we could bear, right? So, so, so what do we learn from all of this stuff? We learn that when you become a child of the King, the Spirit of God is going to change you every single day. That's the lesson that we learn. Augustine said this, before he, I was a Christian, he said, I couldn't help myself but sin. The moment I came to faith in Christ, Christ through the Holy Spirit gave me the tools that I could resist sin. But he says, a day is coming in the future. Well, I will sin no more. So we look at Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And with great delight, I look forward to the, you know, we have the Old Testament and the New. We have all these Olds and New. I look forward to the New Michael, the one that will be resurrected to glory. The one who will be birthed from the Old, but brought into some newness that has never been experienced before. I look forward to that. But until that day comes... Children of God, the Lord has asked us to live new heaven and earth today. He wants us to already begin the process of transformation. All right, my last point, real versus fake. I want to balance the Reformation because I believe the just shall live by faith. I believe that. But remember, we sit on a stool in discipleship. You can't just be on that one side only because you'll topple over. The Lord Jesus said, true disciples, just before the wise and the foolish man, he said in verse 21 of chapter 7, not everyone who calls out to me with their words, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, all the things they did with their mouths. We prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We perform merry miracles in your name. But I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. I'm not trying to be harsh. I'm just trying to be truthful. True disciples, those who come by faith truly to Christ, will become trees of positive fruit. It doesn't mean you don't have setbacks. It doesn't mean you're going, to have, you're going to fall and bruise yourself like a child and you're going to scrape your knee. The Holy Spirit will pick you up again and just keep on the journey. I'm not talking here about perfection, but I am talking about this. There are many who have uttered in their mouth, I have the moment when I came and they got it all, the three-point message, ruin, remedy, responsibility. And I don't know if they have any life at all because that's what Jesus taught. I'm not saying it to be hard. I'm saying it because that's, that's the Savior and Master that we worship, Okay. What we believe will invariably become what we do. You can say you believe all kinds of things. I can say I believe a car works well. If I never get in a car because I'm petrified, I actually don't believe it, right? So you can say things, but do you actually believe them? The Lord requires transformation. And so we have those who hear the Lord's teachings and live by them. They build their house on a solid rock. And when trouble comes, whatever the trouble is, 
They will stand firm. And then there are those who might say it and might say it's a great idea or whatever. But if they don't obey the teachings of the Lord, and that doesn't become their discipleship of maturity in their life, they are building their lives on sinking sand. That's what the parable at the end of the story is all about. Now, you can't see the pictures. I'm enjoying all my PowerPoint slides here, and none of you are. I'm going to finish off with a little story from Dietrich Bonhoeff. I mentioned him, I think, on that Wednesday night. And uh, I was reading a little more of his biography. I don't have time to get into it. I just, I'll just tell you a few important parts. He was born in a big family, I think six or seven children, in modern-day Poland. In those days, it would have been Germany. His father was a neurologist. Like They, they, they were a well-to-do family. And as believers, he especially dedicated his life. They all did, but he dedicated his life to Bible study. He ended up actually in seminary in New York for his PhD. And he actually was a Sunday school teacher in a Baptist church in Harlem, just to show you how diverse his character was. He returned back to Germany at the height of Nazi Germany building up in the country. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer, unlike many Lutherans of his day that became complicit to the movements of Nazi Germany, Dietrich Bonhoeffer spoke against it very vocally. In fact, he had Christians come to him to tell him that, you know, why don't you just tone it down? The war will come to an end and you can go back serving the Lord and you can be in seminary and think of how much good you could still do. You know what Dietrich Bonhoeffer believed? He believed he was called by God to serve then and now. He wasn't trying to preserve his life. Those who try to save their life will lose it. And those who give their life will find it. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer believed that with all his heart. What was the result? He was arrested by the Gestapo, treated as an enemy of the state. And in April of 1945, just a few weeks or months before the war came to its end, like he almost made it. The Nazis stripped him of all his clothes. And naked he went out and they hung him on a gallow. He didn't get to go back to the seminary. We didn't get to hear another 20, 30 years of great Christian doctrine. Why? Because he lived the Christian life. You know what the Lord Jesus would say about a man like that? He was blessed. Because those who are persecuted for my name's sake, they will inherit the kingdom of God. I hope we're all ready to take on that challenge of Christian living. If you thought salvation was the easy way, it's the hard way. Jesus taught that. It's the narrow road that leads to life. It's the right way. I'm not going to take that away. It is the right way. I'm so glad I've come to faith in Christ. It's not the easy way. It's the hard way. You know what Dietrich Dietrich Bonhoeffer said in his commentary about the Sermon on the Mount? It may not mean much for me to say it because, who am I? But I gave you a little glimpse of that man's life and what he was willing to sacrifice for what he truly believed. In his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, he wrote, Only he who believes is obedient. And only he who is obedient believes. He was trying to bring the stool back together. He was trying to tell you, you can say all you want, but if you don't act that way, it means nothing. You can act a certain way, but if you don't really believe it or don't have the motive, you don't have it at all. I'm going to challenge everyone, our homework for August, and after August, it'll be the rest of your life, is to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ is to live in that stool of discipleship in a balanced way where we search out his teachings, we search out his conduct, and we live a life in the same motives as he lived when he came 
to take away our sin. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks for your mercy and kindness to us. We look at these words and we think of uh, what C.S. Lewis said of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, anyone who reads these words with pleasure, they don't understand what they mean. And we would acknowledge this to be true. This is, this is impossible as we read these words. This is impossible for a human to do without the Spirit of God discipling us and leading us through. We know that we have setbacks all the time. We acknowledge this. We are, we are uh, frail and we sin uh, at, at the best of moments. And yet we know that you are working in us. As Peter was restored, you restore us daily. And you, you, you want us to, to be transformed day by day that we might actually show forth the salt and light better in the world, that we might be willing to be the meek and the humble and to be able to be the true peacemakers. So, so help us, we pray, in the week to come, our homework, in the month to come, our homework, and in a lifetime still to come, that we will be those who will be discipled by your Son and that we will have a des- desire to live this life now in a small way what you are richly going to do for us in the age to come. We ask this in our Savior's name. Amen. Hey, thank you so much for listening. What a privilege it was to share God's word with you today. We pray that you were fed, strengthened, and more equipped to run the race with perseverance. To listen to more podcasts like this, make sure to subscribe. For more content from Langstaff and to connect with us, go to langstaffassembly.com. Have a blessed day and we'll see you next time.